the pivot wasn't intentional. Mm. It was organic. I was building this product that teachers liked, that students liked, but they were unwilling to pay for it. And so I knew I had this good idea, but I didn't have a good business. Welcome to Better For It, a business podcast from the Globe and Mail about how our failures shape us. I'm your host, Tamor Durrani. Today, my guest is Pete Smolik, the founder and CEO of Props.Cash, an incredibly fast-growing research platform that focuses on sports betting. In Canada, the sports gambling industry has been having quite the moment. The sector exploded in popularity after the 2021 legalization of single-game bets and the recent rollout of online sports books like FanDuel and DraftKings. Don't worry, if some of these words sound confusing for you non-bettors, we'll get into what it all means and the implications during this episode. Pete didn't always think he would take his talents to the gambling sector. A former teacher, he originally developed his product as an educational tool to help elementary school students understand math concepts through the world of basketball stats. But when the software failed to take hold, he saw the opportunity to pivot to a completely different demographic. Props.cash focuses on a popular subsection of sports betting called prop bets, where gamblers wager on an individual player's performance rather than the outcome of a game. With thousands of potential prop bets a night, the research can get overwhelming. But Props.cash allows subscribers to sort and interpret large amounts of complex statistics using simple-to-understand data visualization. As a result, Pete says that the product gives gamblers an edge and makes the research process much more fun and creative. And many people seem to agree. Just a few years after launching as a subscriber-based software, Props.cash, which has its headquarters in Pete's hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, has tens of thousands of users across 30 countries. It's also one of the highest-grossing sports apps on the Apple App Store. Pete and I talk about how he was able to redirect his user base from children to adults, why simple design is so difficult to achieve, and how he views the stigma surrounding sports gambling. So Pete, you founded Props.Cash in 2020, but I want to go back a little bit further. Um, what was going on in your life in the decade leading up to the start of the company? And then, you know, how did your experiences during that time ultimately lead to the company's founding? So I started my journey in university studying math and stats, and I was always ambitious to become a math teacher at the elementary school level. But I graduated university in 2010 and I went to Teachers College in 2011. And after graduating, there was a glut of teachers in Ontario. So it was very difficult to get a job. I volunteered for a year at uh, schools in Hamilton. Mm. And during that time, to try to get into the school boards, I started building a bit of software that was helping kids learn math through sports. But even with this, I was still unable to even get a supply job um, in the school board. So I was forced to look for other jobs. And ultimately, I was recruited by these startups in Toronto. And I ended up working at startups from 2015 to 2020-ish. And I worked with a startup called Unata in Toronto that was a grocery 
B2B product that ultimately got acquired by a larger company in the United States called Instacart and got to work through that acquisition. But through that time, I got to work with some of the best developers, I would say, in the Toronto area. And and it was it was really formative time in terms of learning best practices and because when I was building the software for students back in 2012 2013 I was I was not using best practices by any means I was just hacking things together as best that I could when you decided to put the idea of teaching um, and being a teacher on hold why was software engineering the natural next step yeah but it was out of necessity more than anything putting myself in the position where I was volunteering for a year working part-time at a coffee shop I didn't have any money and I needed to make money somehow and I could see my friends working at startups and working with software and it was clearly a path to be able to just make a living for myself mm. when I found that teaching was a delayed path with respect to making money I, there was no guarantee yet going back to teaching like you have to get recommended by a principal and mm. it, there's a bit of politics whereas with software you can just build stuff and and, th and that that kind of influenced my path. Now, going to 2020, when I started this, I started a product, it was called Real Numbers, and it was a software to help students learn math, but it was using sports data. So the essence of it was students from grade four to grade eight could identify their favorite players or their favorite teams and the teacher could input those features for each student and then the math problems would be based on the stats of those players or those teams. This was during COVID though. So there were some challenges with getting this product off the ground because teachers were stressed during COVID. I think if we think back to COVID, it was, it was, it was a stressful time for teachers. Teachers had a whole new set of dynamics to their job and they were teaching through a computer. So I was beta testing this product with, you know, from about 30 to 50 teachers over the course of a year. And the teachers did really find this product effective, but it was really hard to get off the ground in the sense of going and pitching it to school boards with all the stress happening during COVID at that time. Mm -hmm. So what was the feedback when you showed it to students, teachers, and administrators at the time? Like, what were they telling you? The feedback was, this is awesome. Mm. Having configuration for students is an objective, like in all the school boards. It's a modern objective, allowing students to customize their learning. So you're not just learning math through how many apples are growing on a tree or how much distance it is from town A to town B. If you're able to offer configuration, there is interest that is generated amongst the students. And I think teachers saw that. Now, it didn't appeal to all the students in the classroom, but the students that it did appeal to, there was clearly peaked interest. And so the feedback that I was getting from the product helped to shape the building of it over the course of that year. So there was great feedback, um, but ultimately you decided to pivot the business to a new audience. Walk me through that decision. So it, the pivot wasn't intentional. Mm. It was organic. I was building this product that teachers liked, that students liked, but they were unwilling to pay for it. And so I knew I had this good idea, but I didn't have a good business. And 
I was kind of getting a bit depressed from this, just from a human standpoint that, you know, to keep a business going, you need to be making some revenue or you mm -hmm. need to be raising money. But in my head, going out and raising money didn't seem like a good use of my time as a software developer. So I had all this data that I had paid for, and this was during the pandemic and sports had just come back on. So this is early 2021. And I started playing with this data and these graphs, these visualizations that I set up for students at the grade four to grade eight level. And I'm a very casual prop better. And, and so I was using this student's software that I built to help me inform my prop betting decisions. And over the course of the first few weeks, I started to see success that I had never seen before in my casual prop betting over the past decade. And a light bulb went on saying, okay, wait, there's, there's something of value here to a different audience. Okay, okay. Let's just pause for a minute uh, because I want to make sure our listeners are all on the same page. And that includes me too. Can you explain what prop betting is and how it differs from traditional sports gambling? So basketball is the most popular North American sport for prop betting, in my opinion. And player prop betting is specifically targeting how what a player performance is going to be like. So if we're looking at Scotty Barnes on the Toronto Raptors, he tends to hit one or two or three three-pointers in a game. So the books might set his line at one and a half threes. So you have to make the guess, is he going to score two threes or is he going to score zero or one threes? And that decision is informed by the matchups he's playing, whether he had a game the night before, injuries in that specific lineup that night. And there are a number of factors with which the data correlates to this given set of parameters for each game. So yeah, it's slightly different than classical betting. I will also say that in Canada, the main avenue for placing a sports bet for the past 20 years or so was through ProLine. And you would go down to the convenience store and buy a ticket, like essentially placing a lottery ticket. Now there were rules in Canada that you had to place what's called a parlay. A parlay is, a, is you have to play multiple bets at once. Now your odds go down with the more bets you have to place at one time. So you had this singular entity, there was a pro line, which set very poor odds for the customer. They were optimal for OLG to, to make significant revenue. Now, these new companies that have come in like FanDuel and DraftKings, you can bet singular bets. That's essentially what the legislation wasn't, a big part of the legislation was in Canada. You can play singular bets. So there is a much more competitive ecosystem now for the customer to, to engage in betting. And I think that's a, a big reason why the popularity has increased uh, in, in the last year. It's certainly become more accessible, right? Like it's it's one of those things where, you know, now you can see it a lot more everywhere. Yeah, they spend a, an insane amount on marketing. I don't think there's any question. If you look at the financials of these books, they are losing money or they have been because they spend so much money to acquire a user. Yeah. It can be hard to picture a product like yours that's very visual. 
But can you explain what your software does? What is the user experience like? Yeah. So to do that, I'm going to start with explaining what it's not like. And if you go on TSN or you go on ESPN and you look at the box score of a sports game, it's in a table format. Mm. And you have to go from game to game on a web browser looking at these tables. It's not easy to understand how a player has done over the course of a season using these tables. So what our product does is that it, it takes the player's data and it, it simply turns it into a bar graph. And then the bar graph has a line through it that is the line with which the book has set the prop. And it shows the, the games where they've gone under in red and the games where they've gone over in green. It's a very simple idea. Now, where the, the value comes into the user is there are thousands of prop bets every night. And you need an efficient way to sort this data. And so we've been very, very focused on the user experience where the user has a player's data up their bar graph and they can seamlessly see what Scotty Barnes, what he does in games where Pascal Siakam isn't playing or where Scotty Barnes played 25 minutes or more mm. or Scotty Barnes how he performed on the road when Fred Van Fleet wasn't playing. And so we've created a sandbox where users can sort this data in a way that is seamless and they can kind of get lost in it. And this allows the user to have an uninterrupted session in terms of finding an angle that they find optimal for making their prop betting decision. We'll have more with Pete after the break. I think the success of props.cash says a lot about how important simplicity is when thinking about design. Because to me, the fact that you were able to prototype something for children and then pivot it to an adult audience without a massive redesign is really interesting. Yeah, I've learned that simplicity in software is extremely important and it's very hard to do it's very easy to overcomplicate things for the user when you work at a tech company you have a team of developers generally and you have product managers that thrust ideas into the software and and progress needs to be happening and progress a lot of the time at software companies is more and more features and what that does is it it can isolate users and make them feel overwhelmed. And I think it's specifically true when you're talking about something that has a mathematical component to it. A huge subset of our population is at a grade five to grade eight math level. But making mathematical ideas accessible to the greater population from a business standpoint is extremely important because you capture that lar the largest audience. And in the sports betting software ecosystem, most of the software was built by people that went to Stanford or went to Harvard and they had, they're using regression tests and they're using these advanced ideas, integrals and calculus. 
And to be honest, the greatest subset of the population doesn't understand the application mm -hmm. of that. And so from a business standpoint, you are targeting a very small percentage of the overall population when you increase complexity. So there's an art to pulling back and making simple software. And it's, it's not easy to do because you have all these customers that are telling you to add this, add this, add this. That's the nature of the feedback loop. And so you have to be really restrained and have empathy for the customer that it's going to isolate if you start to add more and more numbers or more and more experiments on the site. The gambling sector has exploded. We know this, you know, over the last few years, and it's been estimated that it could generate as much as $25 billion in wagering annually. But, but there is a stigma, or at least there's been a stigma associated with gambling. So do you, do you think that av the average Canadian is viewing the sector differently now? Is that stigma, do you think, declining? I'm not sure, but I, I think it's fair to have a stigma for this industry. Betting can be problematic for for people. It it can it can really hurt families and it can hurt communities. And I think it's important for the Canadian population to force these sports books and force re force regulators to to really push responsible betting. And I and and from a math perspective. The way to do this is if people are going to bet, they should be betting very small amounts. Simple mathematical principle is the more that you bet, the more that you're going to converge to the odds that the sports books put out, and they're going to make money long term. Gambling is a form of entertainment. It provides a different lens with which you can view the game mm. and research and prepare for the game. You can With betting, you can kind of approach a Raptors game through the frame of being kind of a pseudo coach or having to weigh the matchup and you can put a few dollars down to kind of validate your hypothesis on the game. Where people get into trouble and where I think the stigma is fair is when people are placing more money than they have uh, on these games. And and it, I think there's no question that it's a problem. Just just being blunt for that subset of, of, uh, of gamblers. Yeah. Right, right. But do you think people would say that you're still, you know, by even existing in this space, you're kind of propagating that still, you know, you're kind of still enabling people to gamble? Yeah, I mean, people are open to their opinion of me. In my eyes, we are a, a tool. We are essentially publishing data in a way that allows people to make an educated decision based on the data at hand. We're not accepting bets or feeding people to the casinos or the sports books. We are simply a tool, like a calculator, that allows them to evaluate their decision. Yeah, I mean, if I go on the company's Twitter, I see people posting screenshots of the success they've had using the tool. Can you talk a little bit about how important social media and specifically the gambling community on Twitter has been to growing your user base? Yeah, we were very lucky, first of all, that we, we were able to use social media as a mechanism to grow the business. The main factor that allowed us to do that was the idea was novel. The idea was new and it helped people win their bets. When you have a product that helps people make money, there is an incentive for that person to tell their friends. And social media is the base with which they can tell their friends. From there, we were able to get accounts 
like Stephen Che from Barstool, mm. um, who had you know, 50, 100x the times the amount of people that we had, he would share a picture of our graph and at us on Twitter. Okay, we get another thousand followers from that. And it just steamrolled. Now, the success of the business was critical with respect to the timing because people are coming out now with a very similar product, but the idea is no longer novel. And they're having a really difficult time growing on Twitter because people have seen this before. And so my recommendation to people that are trying to grow a product on Twitter or on social in general is if you have original idea, you can use social as your main marketing mechanism. We've tried paid ads on Instagram and Facebook. The nature of our industry as well in the sports betting space you need to gain the trust of users and you do not gain trust uh, from the user through advertising. You gain trust through them using the product and experiencing that success for themselves and then interacting with them. The other thing I will say about social, we do so much in the DMs. We do, we essentially run our customer support like over half of our customer support is run through Twitter DMs. Mm. It's an insanely powerful mechanism to touch and interact with the user. We are approaching 100,000 users on Twitter or followers on Twitter. And when an account with 50 followers reaches out to us and asks us a question and we get back to them within a couple minutes, that's, an, that's a moment where we have created a bridge of trust with them which is exponentially more valuable than them seeing a props.cash advertisement on Reddit, for instance. If it went away completely, like if Twitter went away, would that be a problem then? Yeah, I think so, mm. for sure. Um, and I, and I, I've noticed a lot of people preparing for that with TikTok and switching to other social platforms. I personally don't think Twitter's going to go away, though. Mm. It is a... You have a lot more hope in Elon Musk than a lot more people might. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I do. I mean, that's that's a whole separate topic, but we we do have a lot of eggs in the Twitter basket. Mm. Yeah. So, Pete, what's next for Props.Cash? Like, you know, where would you like the company to be in a few years? It's a great question. You know, I push back on this question because this industry is moving so quickly that I don't necessarily think it's a good idea for people to roadmap where, where they're going to be in two years because mm. in the two years that I've been in this industry, I've seen so many ideas live and die. There is a ton of value to be living in the present or as close to the present as possible and having very short-term roadmaps so that you can deal with the, the change that is that is happening in this industry. And I would say in this space, because it's so new, the change is happening very, very quickly. So I do know that the customers are going to influence dramatically where it is going to go. Have you put the idea of being a teacher completely on hold? No, I, I still plan on going back and- Interesting, in, okay. In future. Yeah, if they welcome me back. Um, do you think they won't? No, I think they will. I mean, 
They probably, I mean, you know, it's like kind of one of those jobs. They probably are always looking for more teachers now. <laughs> yeah, I just heard they opened up a few in, in Ontario. I, I would love to go back and be a teacher at some point. I, I, it's still a goal of mine. Still a passion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is something you wish you had known back when you started out? You know, a piece of advice for other entrepreneurs, something you would have liked to know. Yeah, so this might not apply to everybody, but I'm a firm believer that quitting your job and going all in on something that you're building takes the idea to a new level. And there's an element of risk that forces you to behave in a way that you won't act if you're still working a second job. So you need to time that appropriately. But when I quit my job to go and work on this full time, it made a huge difference in the acceleration of the business. I know that there's a number of entrepreneurs out there that can probably relate to that moment because it's a scary moment, but it's a moment that that matters and it's an investment in the spirit of growing that idea. Pete, I want to wrap up by asking you, how do you view failure? The, the idea of failure for a business is to me not the right word. Mm. It's more nuanced than that. I wouldn't have created this product if I didn't create the first product. So was that first product a failure in the grand scheme of things? I don't, I personally don't call it a failure. It seems like sensationalism to me to call it a failure. It was a necessary building block to get where props.cash is today. Props.cash would not have been built without building the, the software for students. So for other entrepreneurs out there that are building products that are, that don't have product market fit, they are in a better spot to be able to pivot that product to something that potentially could have product market fit. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pete. Thank you for having me. On the next episode of Better For It. So over the years, I've had coaches, I've had, you know, mentors, mm. managers who have told me I need to develop more gravitas, you know, CEO gravitas. And when you're coming to me and telling me I don't have gravitas, I tend to think that I'm not acting male enough. That was Sylvia Ng a tech industry veteran who is the CEO of ReturnBear. Sylvia and I discuss what she learned working at massive companies like Google, Shopify, and eBay, the disadvantages women in tech need to overcome, and why she doesn't fit the typical mold of what a startup CEO looks like. Better For It is produced by Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Kieran Rana and Alicia Sani. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with all your friends. Until next time, you can find more business-related stories at theglobeandmail.com. And you can listen to our other episodes on your favorite podcast app. I'm Tamar Durrani. Talk to you soon.